0: Good to see y'all today, this morning, praise God, turn your Bibles if you would please to Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, yes we're gonna take a small break from Romans, we'll be back there next Sunday, but for today, turn uh, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, I'm gonna be reading verses uh, 57 through 62. So i to let you know uh, just how much I appreciate all of you and how thankful I am for this church. And, you know, I, uh, sometimes I don't mention that. And this morning during our prayer time before church, we had just, you know, we had uh, acknowledged this fact that be careful that we don't take these things for granted and one another for granted. Because we have such a great um, privilege to be able to have one another, you know, the body of Christ, this local assembly. We have one another and um, genuine Uh, godly, Christian brothers and sisters. I mean, it's such a great blessing that God gives us each other, and sometimes we don't recognize or we don't ever say anything, and sometimes we can take it for granted. And I just wanted this morning to uh, let you all know how much I appreciate all of you very much, and love all of you very much, and and thank God that uh, we're in this together. (laughs) We're walking this out together, you know, unto the end. To the end, you know, and, and no one gets left behind here, you know, and I think of Pilgrim's progress as he was making his journey to the celestial city, you know, and it's, it's, uh, it's important that we encourage each other on, you know, and, and exhort one another, uh, until that day, you know, that we're, we're no longer here. Time goes short, I mean, time, time flies, and, um, we want to just take every moment for the glory of Christ. Amen. Reading from, uh... Book of Luke, chapter 9, starting in 57, we ending, obviously, in the last verse, which is 62, which reads, I'm reading from the King James Version. And it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes, have holes and birds of the air have nest but the son of man hath not where to lay his head and he said unto another follow me but he said Lord suffer me first to go and bury my father and Jesus said unto him let the dead bury the dead but go thou and preach the kingdom of God and another also said Lord I will follow thee but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto them, unto him, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let us pray. Father, we look to you this morning. For everything. And Lord, we ask you that you would grant us strength. Uh, Grant us the ability uh, to be able to hear your voice. Open our eyes, Lord, that we would see your beauty as Isaiah saw you high and lifted up, Lord. Lord, help us not to minimize you, Lord, and, and make you more into ourselves, but to see you as you truly are, that we can truly see ourselves as we truly are. Lord, would you be pleased today to pour out your Spirit upon this congregation? Lord, would you be pleased to allow the preaching of your Word to be preached with power from on high? Lord, cause us to follow hard after you, Lord. Cause us to persevere until the end. Until we close our eyes, Lord, let us be faithful and devoted and loyal to your word, to the gospel and to your son. Lord, the world needs godly men and women. Lord, we ask that you would equip your church for these trying hours in our country's history. That we would reflect the beauties of Christ and the power of God in our daily lives, Lord. That we wouldn't be performance driven, but we would be directed and empowered and moved by the Spirit of God. Lord, give your people an uncompromising spirit, Lord. that we would not faint in the day of adversity, but we would keep our eyes upon our King and walk in a way that would honor and glorify you and testify to the world that there truly is a people of God. Have your way, Lord, this Lord's Day as we dedicate it to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Our focus verse this morning is I really want to focus in and dial in on Luke 9.62 when Christ declares, No one who puts his hand to the plow, then looks back, is fit for the kingdom of God. And I have titled this message in three parts. I want to look at the person, which is really uh, the plowman himself. I want to look at the instrument, which is the plow. And I want to look at the pasture in which we, as believers, are called to plow. In verse 62 is really our key text. No one who puts his hands to the plow and then looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And I think Christ, when when he, he proclaims this, he's really looking back at the story which we see in 1 Kings nineteen nineteen when uh, we see Elijah making a connection with Elisha. And it says in uh, 1 Kings 19, 19, just so we can get some idea, I believe in what Christ is, is dealing with in this verse. He says here, So Elijah departed and found Elijah, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the 12. Then Elijah passed by him, And threw his mantle upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah. And said, please let me kiss my father and my mother. And then I will follow you. And he said to him, Elijah says to him, go back again? For what have I, basically what have I just done to you? What just happened here? And you want to go back? So Elijah turned back from him took a yoke of oxen slaughtered them and boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. I mean this is the idea that Christ is putting before them. That it's an all in all decision. That this Decision to put your hand to the plow is really a decision to die to everything else in your life. It seems that in Jesus' eyes, the virtue of a plowman is of supreme importance. So much so that he wants us to take this picture of the plowman for our supreme example and model. So we must ask ourselves this question. What is it about the plowman that commands our respect? What quality is it that Christ is referring to in his reverence to the plowman? Well, for starters, plowmen don't look back. If they do, they will destroy and ruin the field in which they are sent to plow, sent to plant and to reap destroy the whole work of the field if they look back. The ones whose hands must be securely fastened and whose eyes must be set in a forward motion till he is finished with the job at hand. John Gill comments on this, for the plowman ought to look before him on his plow and on the ground he is plowing or he is not fit to be a plowman nor will he make proper furrows or do his work well. And so that he that enters upon this ministerial work and looks back and engages himself in the affairs of the world, sets his heart on them and spends his time in them, is not fit for the kingdom of God. That is to preach the kingdom of God. We read in verses Uh, 9, 51, and 53, the preceding verses, it said that Christ, that he had set his face towards Jerusalem. And we know what happens when he gets there. He is on a mission. He has already counted the cost. He's single-minded, unstoppable, unflinching. He sets his jaw like what the Bible says, like flint. To accomplish the work by which she was sent to accomplish. This idea, this picture, is this unmovable state of mind, obviously enabled by the Spirit of God, that when you, if we can use the word in our day, make a decision without thinking that we're preaching easy believism, but once we make that decision to follow Christ, It must be in this reality that we are all in. We must set our jaw like flint. Jesus Christ, obviously the Son of God, uh, who was 100% God and 100% man, fully God, really gives us the perfect picture of an unflinching heart, one who truly sets his jaw like flint, one who, um, regardless of the pain, the affliction, and the adversity, he's unmovable. Once his mind is set, knowing that he's God, but once his mind is set on the goal, he is ultimately unstoppable. And Christ is not going to give us any greater picture or lower picture to follow as a goal outside of himself. Jesus Christ is ultimately the primary goal. Spurgeon said that is why he singled out the plowmen. Plowmen are not usually learned persons nor are they often poets in disguise. The plowman has already counted the cost. He's single-minded. And he goes on to say that there is one virtue that possesses all plowmen preeminently, and that is the virtue of quietly holding on. The one virtue of all plowmen is the reality is that they have been given this ability to just quietly and continually hold on. In Luke 9.62 the Bible says, no one who puts his hands to the plow which actually in the original language it means actually to plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This idea here that Listen, don't put your hands to the plow if you're not willing to plow. Don't don't take a half step. Don't look back. Don't be wavering. Don't be unstable. That when you follow Christ, it's all or nothing. Once we turn to Christ, Jesus says, all of those who come after me, we know the verse must deny themselves, must die, they must take up their cross and follow Him. This is what it means to actually... To plow. If you're going to put your hands to the plow, we must be willing and ready to submit and follow Christ at all costs. We're not to play with the handles. We're not to play with the plow. It doesn't become a toy for us to dangle around and show off and talk about the plow. But when our hands grab a hold of the plow, it's forever. It's death to self and a life for Christ I like, like what Hebrews chapter 6, verse 7 says, For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives the blessing from God. Obviously, no, we're not talking about going out in your backyard and, and, and planting a garden, which is beautiful. Gardens are beautiful. They're wonderful. If you haven't planted one, please do. I'm sure um, you know, there's a lot of serenity in that. But he's dealing with this idea from a spiritual perspective that before we can go out and and cultivate the world for Christ, we must have lives that are completely surrendered and sold out to Christ. In order for us to make any kind of impact in this world, listen, truly, honestly, I mean, I, I hope this doesn't sound cliche, but the reality is, you know, in order for us to go out into the world with an impact upon the world, an impact in our culture, in our world, we must be truly surrendered biblical followers of Jesus Christ. Halfway Christians do nothing but make more of a mess. Moderates destroy. The reality is, is that what Christ is calling his disciples to, through as we'll look through these verses, He's calling them to a complete and total sacrificial life of following Christ through it all, through all of life's adversity, through it all, and and, and be able to continue on until the end. Luke 9, 57 through 62 was the verse that we read this morning and really what Jesus is dealing with is really the cares of this world the cares of this world personified in these different individuals that he talks to. In Luke 9, 57, he says, And as they were walking along the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you. I will follow you wherever you go. Same story we see in Matthew eight nineteen. It says it's one of the scribes. A certain scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Matthew Henry, he makes a comment on this verse. He says, Here is one that is forward to follow Christ, but seems to have been hasty and rash and not to have counted the cost. And if we mean to follow Christ, we must lay aside the thoughts of great things in this world. The greatest thing that contends with our full devotion to Christ is this idea that we can somehow be great in this world. And then we have this belief that we can do both. That somehow we can balance these out and still have these great desires to be great in the world, but yet still be a follower of Christ. And the Bible knows nothing of it. It's all or nothing. It doesn't take a great theologian to understand that. It's all or nothing. True Christians are totally devoted to Christ, are totally surrendered to Christ. They're not perfect in the sense of they're able to live perfectly before God, but they understand who they are and they certainly understand the call of Christ upon their lives. See, this man in his flaring enthusiasm really was just a smokescreen to his egotistical self-deceit. And therefore, he coldly checked, Jesus coldly checked his evidence of devotion, which would have not stood the test. In his hastiness and said, oh, I I, I will follow you. I'll, I'll follow you wherever you go, teacher. I'll go wherever you want me to go. Kind of like Peter. Remember Peter? said that Peter followed Christ at a distance. There's always a safety in being far enough away to still call yourself a follower of Christ, but yet you want to do it at a very safe distance and this didn't work with Christ. Christ didn't see that as this guy's not really counting the cost. He's just hasty and he's bravado and he's saying things that he really doesn't mean. And they will not stand the test. Then in 9.58, Jesus replied, Fox have dens and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. I mean, what a devastating blow, especially to a scribe. To a know-it-all. You know, what a way to... What way to deliver an upper a spiritual uppercut to somebody and saying listen, okay, you want to follow me? Well I'm homeless. I don't have anything to give you. you're not going to become famous by following me. You're not going to develop a name for yourself. there's no riches involved. There's no title idols here, scribe. This is a complete death to self and by the way, I'm homeless. Which gives you an idea of Christ's perseverance through all of this until he made it to the cross. He set his jaw like flint. And here's the here's the picture that we have of the Lord's ministry. It's not grandois, it isn't this this idea of this big exalted figure walking around and everybody's just looking at him as like like the Pope walking around and everybody's, you know, just bowing down to him, kissing his toes and doing all these things. Christ is the exact opposite. The perfect picture and definition of humility. I'm homeless. Are you still willing to follow me? I don't have any place to sleep. You're not going to sleep in a comfortable bed tonight. This confronts the comfortable Christianity of our day. True followers of Christ must come to the conclusion and come to the end of themselves that you may be, all your comforts may be removed. You may find yourself in a jail cell. You may find yourself in a dungeon. You may find yourself with a gun to your head called to deny Christ. Any kind of discomfort that comes upon the pampered Christianity in this country goes out of control. And usually what happens is, the fitter rage doesn't usually show up as a fitter rage. You know what it shows up as? Compromised and woke Christianity. It It transforms itself into an angel of light. Instead of dealing with the issues and taking upon the authentic call of Christ as we are as Christians and persevering through all of the ugliness until we come to the celestial city. But instead, we, we refuse that. We resist that true biblical Christianity, and it becomes a deformed, false, counterfeit version that we see being propagated all over today. And as a matter of fact, it's being exco- exposed, and one by one, a lot of these preachers are dissolving before our eyes. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. That you through his poverty might become rich. Now how many people have twisted this scripture for their own gain and glory, right? Is it talking about filling your bank account? That Christ became poor so you can become wealthy. And get your new Mercedes Benz and drive around and this and that and this and that. There's nothing wrong with having money. Not saying that. But the reality here is not talking about that. That Christ became poor. He took upon himself these realities of life for our sake. That we too could understand the realities of being a true Christian and what it really means to be a follower of Christ. Because I think in our day there's a lot of confusion in what it truly means to be a Christian. Why? Because in our country there's a lot of confusion of what Christianity is. See, in your made up form of Christianity, you're a Christian in that False world, but false Christianity. In that world, you are defined based upon that worldview that's completely, totally false. You say, well, I'm a Christian. Well, I I believe you believe that. But that belief is grounded in a false, counterfeit version of Christianity. I believe that you are a convert to that view of Christianity. But the reality is, this, what, what Christ is speaking here in these words contradicts and confronts all of that. He's showing what it truly means to be a disciple. He says to him, then he says to another man, follow me. And the man says, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Let me first go bury my father. John MacArthur writes in his study guide on Matthew, he says that the whole idea of let me first go and bury my father was a common figure of speech, meaning let me wait until I have received my inheritance. In other words, dollar signs, right? You know, let, let me first, you know, before I go, you know, let me just make sure that there's enough money in my account, my bank account. Let me go receive my inheritance first. And notice He says, I must first go and bury my father. I must first go. In other words, my father comes before you. My my life comes before you, Lord. When the Bible is very clear that God makes it known in his word that you shall have no other gods before me. That I am the Lord thy God. And you shall have no other gods before me. God doesn't just want to be first in your life. He wants to be only in your life. He doesn't want to be lined up with all of your idols. Well, I love God. and I have This, 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 and this. He doesn't want to be lined up on your shelf of idols. He wants to be your only love. Your all, all-encompassing all love should be God himself. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me bid farewell to my family. Not only the urge for financial gain causes one to want to... Bow down to an idol before God, but it's even family members at times. You know, we can become so. We're called to love our families. We're called to love our children, but not at the cost of loving Christ. Our love for our children should never exceed our love for God. Because what happens is that our family can turn into an idol. And it happens. We've seen ministries completely crash because they put family first. should be God first. Family second. Which can be extremely disastrous. And Jesus declared, he said, no one puts his hand to the plow and then looks back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Christ said in Luke 14, 26 and 27, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, And wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Let that sink in. No stone unturned. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Brothers and sisters, Is this you this morning? Can you honestly say this morning, hearing these words, that you are Christ's disciple? That you are truly following Christ as his disciple? You know I love you. And I'm saying these are hard words because they go for me too. And these are hard words for me to swallow. When I look at this and like, God, I look at this and I look at the enormity of this call upon a disciple and I look at myself and all of my failures. and, And all I can do is turn to Christ. All I can do, God, I see myself as undone. These words have totally unraveled my entire existence before you, Lord. You know, these verses 57 through 62 is really, you know, incidents that are illustrative of discipleship. These are different things that keep most people from following Christ. They keep you from coming, keep you from saying, you know what, come death or life, Christ, I'm going to follow you. Take it all away. Take my family away. Take my marriage. Or whatever, you, whatever you want to do in your sovereign will or whatever pleases you, Lord, I am willing to accept it and subject myself to it and submit to it, Lord, because I know that there's an end to all things. I know there's going to come a time, Lord God, when I'm going to leave this earth and I'm going to stand before you and you're going to hold me accountable to these things. In Luke 9, 57 and 58, we really see hastiness, a hasty disciple. Christ deals with the hasty disciple. In Luke 9, 59 and and 60, we see the procrastinating disciple. Procrastinating. And then in Luke 9, 61 and 62, we see the wavering disciple. Hesitant, nervous, fluctuating. And indecisive. The first case is that of a thoughtless impulse. The second is that of conflicting, conflicting duties. The third is really of a divided mind. A divided mind. You know, the whole picture here, really, if we could just get it down into a nutshell, you know, it's really the Christian durability. It's the durability of your faith, where, where Christ Himself not only calls us, we're not just just called into this autonomously where somehow or another we got to hold on for dear life with our own free will and just hope that we can make it through this life without letting go. This is not the idea here, but it's really, you know, we're so afraid with all of our talk on the sovereignty of God, we're so afraid of talking about anything that has to do with grabbing on to things and holding on to things and doing things. We're so scared and timid of our Reformed theology that we can never talk about anything that has to do with doing something without thinking you're talking about uh, free will or you're talking about earning your salvation. None of these things are what we're talking about in this. This has nothing to do with you earning your salvation. It has nothing to do with you holding on and keeping your salvation. But it's everything to do with whether or not you're a true follower of Jesus Christ. Whether you are a hasty disciple, whether you are a procrastinating disciple, or whether you are a wavering disciple. The reality is, you've been called by Christ. We're to recognize this serious call. But not only the seriousness of the call, but the action required within the call. And that is a life that is dead to self, filled with the strength of the Spirit. And one that is defined with a constitution that says, I am all in. Not double mindedness, as the book of James says, that a double minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Your double mindedness just, just doesn't affect you in that one area. Your double mindedness basically contributes to havoc in every arena of your life. As Paul says, this one thing I do, a picture of durability and stability. Christians should be durable, they should be stable. I'm not talking about instability in the sense of your struggles. I'm talking about stability and durability in the sense that you are truly a disciple. Not that you don't have problems. Not that you don't get knocked down. Not that you don't have issues. The reality is here is that do you persevere? Do you persevere through it all? When Jesus uses the phrase looking back, he seems to be making a reference to the looking back of Lot's wife. Not only Elijah, but this reality of this idea of looking back, which denotes hesitation and being double-minded, not being ready Uh, in the New Testament, really means fit, really, it means well placed. And Jesus said, obviously, remember. Remember Lot's wife. Remember. Lot's wife and that's certainly not a very pretty picture. It's important that we don't look back. It's imperative that we don't look back. Boston and Brown, the commentary says, he comments on this saying, said, the expression looking back has a manifest, re- manifest reference to Lot's wife. It is not an actual return to the world. Hear me now. It's not an actual return to the world, but a reluctance, unwillingness to break with it. In other words, you're not wanting to return to the world. You just kind of want everything together in one shot, one pile. You want to be able to somehow manufacture a Christianity that's okay with both sides of the spectrum. And there are ministries out there that are extremely grieving this day and age, you see a lot of worldliness. They've got even solid, some of these guys have got solid doctrine. But their practical Christianity is of the world. We need to be careful because we can be lured in to this idea they've got solid doctrine, but they're worldly. And it's. I think it's very dangerous because we can be sucked in with a great theology And the cool lifestyle. In other words, I can still be me. And be a follower of Christ. But the reality, we are called to be separate of this world. We're to come out from the world, as Paul said, and be separate. We're sanctified people. We're set apart. We're to be holy as God is holy. We're to walk in ways that are not like the world. We can be in the world, but not all the world. You've heard that a million times. And the reality is, is that we step in and we transform culture. We don't hide from culture, but we lead. But we lead not from a sense of the world in trying to somehow persuade the world through worldly means to come to God. But we, we persuade, the, persuade the world how? By persuading God, by being pleasing to God. And he himself persuades the world to the Son. In Revelation fourteen twelve. It says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ. These are those that didn't look back. These are those that kept their hand to the plow. In this readiness to wait to endure through much tribulation to the end, is the patience of the saints seen? There is a patient waiting for Christ shown by those who keep God's commandments, who cleave to righteousness in spite of much temptation, who refuse to pay homage to the God of this world because firm in the faith that Jesus is King. Jesus says, whoever tries to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will preserve it. Let us lose our life for Christ. What is so gripped us to such an extent that we're willing to trade out the beauties and treasures of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for cheap, polluted, dead things? I think of this whole idea of hand to the plow. I think of Second Samuel twenty-three, ten, when describing of one of. Uh, David's mighty man, whose name was Eleazar, says he stood his ground and struck down the Philistines to his hand, grew tired, and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. Another version reads it this way. He struck the Philistines down until his hand grew tired, but he still held on to the sword. I mean, this is the picture, the illustration that's being preached to us this morning. This idea through scripture showing us this, this, this unwillingness to, to let go in spite of all of the tribulation and all the temptations and all the things out there that surround us, that tempt us every single day. Not just the adversity, not just the persecution, but the overwhelming temptations that are dished out to us from the world. Everywhere we turn. That we're unwilling to let go of the plow for these things. That we're to stand our ground even though our hands freeze to our swords. We hold on. No one puts his hand to the plow and looks back. is fit for the kingdom of God. This is a characteristic of a true Christian that he doesn't let go. He doesn't let go. Because he says here, he who puts his hand showing beforehand who it is. It's a believer. And that believer who puts his hand to the plow is fit for the kingdom of God. And the one that doesn't isn't fit for the kingdom of God. It's really dealing ultimately with the distractions of our life. George Morrison writes, he says, But as life advances and deepens and enriches, there is another conflict which emerges. It's not the conflict between right and wrong. It is the conflict of what is right and right. There are men whose bitterest and sorest struggle is not the fight between duty and disloyalty. It is a secret battle of the spirit between one clear duty and another. Boy, isn't that the truth. It isn't always like, the battle isn't always from right and wrong, right and wrong, right and wrong. Sometimes it's what's right and what's right. It's too many good things. Doing too many things. Totally zaps you of your strength to do the one thing in which God has called you to do. It's this battle of what is right and right. Spurgeon said, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's knowing the difference between Right and almost right. It's really the struggle of the ages. It's the struggle of the minister. It's the struggle of the Christian. You know, he wants to do everything he can for Christ, so he does 20 different things. And he's not fruitful in any of them. It's better that you do one thing and put all your eggs in one basket and fully just intoxicate yourself with it and what God has called you to do. And stay there, and stay there, and don't quit. Even if it looks like everything is failing, do you realize how long we have been here as a church? We've been here a little over four years now. And if I were to look at the, the reality of some of the things that have happened, I would have quit a long time ago if I didn't know that I was called to this work. People say, why aren't you out on the street preaching? Why aren't you doing conferences anymore? Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? Because Christ called me to this. And he didn't call me to succeed. He called me to be faithful. Just stick it out. You know how much people I've seen go through this church already since we've been here? Unfortunately, me, obviously, it's no fun. You know this betrayal that I've seen from people that I thought I could trust starting this work? And, and, and some of the things and, and just the, the, the spiritual worker on my family, on my children and the things that happen and go on, it would just make your hair curl. But the, the, the reality is is that I don't want to do 20 different things. Uh, I want to do whatever God's called me, this one thing that I do, because I've only got one life, and I'm not going to spread myself so thin, thin 40 different things. It's going to be this one thing. And whatever God has called you to do, do with all your might. Don't worry about how many people applaud you, how many likes, how many shares, how many people get behind you, how much support did you get. Wherever God's called you, flourish there and stay there. I remember we went into Camden. It was considered the most dangerous city in America. Full of crime and drugs and you name it. It was there. It was literally like a graveyard. Preaching in a graveyard. I was there for six years. Why was I there for six years? Because it's not because I got a bunch of decisions. Barely anybody repented. There were two wiped out and wasted. I I don't know. I mean, we had a few, maybe two or three within the six years that we were out there. It was such a devastated place to be. But I wasn't there because I was looking for decisions. I wasn't there because I was trying to have a certain ministry to bring some level of fame and satisfaction to my, to my life. I was there because I believed wholeheartedly this is where God called me. And it wasn't, most of the time it wasn't enjoyable. Most of the time it, 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 it was horrible. I would come home from that place and I'd feel like I'd just been birthed out of hell. I would get home, I'd feel like a glazed donut covered in just. Rottenness, I just felt disgusting inside and out. Worn out from preaching, praying for people laying on the streets with you know they're coming down for drugs, or little kids are running all around them, waiting for their kids, waiting for their parents to be revived and come back to life so they can take care of them. You saw all kinds of things down there, just heart-wrenching, depressing. But God calls you to a work, you you must throw yourself into it and stick it out. Until the end, or until God diverts you and puts you into another work. And be okay with that. And not worry about what everybody else says about it. You must come to that place in your life at this point where you are called by Christ, that you die to yourself, and your sole motivation is to worship Christ and what he's called you to do and never quit. Distractions are all around his race. Right Everything seems so important for our time and our attention. Let us turn now to the instrument as we get through this. The tool, which really was a uh, a plowman. We looked at the plowman and what Christ thought of the plowman. Why he used the illustration of a plowman. Then we look at the plow itself. And Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The plow comes from the Greek word. It's, It's really a word that says aerotron, which means a plow. But is used in the verse as an action word, a verb pronounced as "eritreo," meaning "I plow." It's an action word. Which you could combine the three words together, you get the plowman, the plow, and the plowing as one act, as one word, as one accomplished word. They all seem to lock together as if inseparable. That the plowman and the plow and the act of plowing are all one. Action verb, which points to 1 Corinthians 1:30 that says, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom of God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. All of it's locked into Christ, it's all locked into one person. Also, there were certain seasons that we saw for plowing. The Jewish encyclopedia notes in ancient times as today, it was doubtless. Hardly sufficient to plow the fallow land once only, but it had to be gone over three times. The first plowing would be in the winter, was followed by a second in the spring, and a third in the summer. The careful husbandman even plowed a fourth time late in the summer. We see this, you know, these, these seasons, four times a year of plowing the field. We look of Christ who is the day which has no beginning or end, whose season is eternal, must be proclaimed in all seasons. For Christ himself was the man of all seasons. 2 Timothy 4.2 says that we're to preach the word of God in season. You see, this idea of plowing goes back to which Christ was calling them to preach the kingdom of God, to preach the gospel. This idea of plowing, spiritually speaking, is preaching the word Of God, And this is what's going on. This is why uh, Paul tells Timothy to preach the word in season. This is the connotations that we have here in the idea of illustrations of fields and plowing and cultivating. We see this. Preach the word in season and out of season. Why? Because Christ Jesus is the man, the God of all seasons. So what about our message? You know, we think of the plow. We think of this tool. Do we worship the tool? What does the tool actually do? What does a plow in ancient times? How how did it function, and, and how did it how did it work? Um, in other words, you couldn't sow you couldn't sow the seed without first you know is, is plowing the field. Nothing will grow because the soil is, is too hard, and and the, the seeds need to get into the soil. So the hard ground obviously needs to be broken up. So the ground has to be turned over before the sowing of the seed can take place. So in reality, the, the hard ground needs to be lifted up and out of the way in the soft ground where the seeds are planted. And the reality is that the plowman, he never turned over the ground as the modern implement did. The plowman guides the plow with one hand, his hands to the plow, and with the other, he sometimes he goads the oxen. And in other times with the chisel end of his goat breaks away the lumps of earth or other material which impedes the progress of his plow. The plowman himself does not, now hear me closely on this, the plowman himself does not turn the soil over. But the design of the plow itself does the work. If the plowman gets off track, the plow will as well. In other words, it is another that does the work. So this is the picture that we have when our Messiah says, "Go and proclaim the kingdom of God." We must preach the truth, but not just preach it; we must live it as well. We must trust that the Christ honoring gospel and trust God Himself, and He will turn the hearts of men to Himself. So He actually implement itself. It's just all basically all He has His hand to the plow, and He's being pulled along by the oxen. And the plow itself, the way it's designed, is going up underneath this hard clay, and it's popping it up as hard surface is tilling it out, and leaving the ground open and exposed for the seed. The plow basically does all the work itself. The Jewish Encyclopedia says that the plow itself was in the shape of a cross. It consists of a long pole with a wooden cross piece at the lower end and a handle parallel to the ladder at the upper end by means of which the plow is guided. The whole plow can actually be carried on a man's shoulder. One writer says, this is exactly what is said of the apostle in Acts 17, 6, when he says, these who have turned the world upside down have come here, too, dealing with the gospel plow and what the gospel does. Romans 1, 16 says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to who." To everyone who believed, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And we preach the gospel, brothers and sisters. We are literally plowing the fields. We put this plow, the cross, into the ground of men's hearts and we let the oxen power of the Holy Spirit turn the soil of men's hearts, revive and restore life and set their feet on a narrow path and give them the strength to grab a hold of the plow and face the dangers of this world, the temptations of this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life and never look back. Jesus said you are either gathering or you are scattering. You're either part of the solution or you are part of the problem. No man, says the Lord, having put his hand to the plow and looks back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Which brings us to our last and final point the task, the actual pastor itself, the pastor itself. Which the pastor really represents the, the, the world. Jesus said this the field represents the civilized world and the hearts of men. In Matthew 13, 38, Jesus says that the field is the world. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. He is saying, go out out into the fields and plow. Then he says in uh, John 4, 35, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. See, Jesus is using this illustration of this idea of the plowman in the sense to his disciples constantly dealing with the world and fields and worlds and, and, and the plow and the, and the turning the world upside down. And all these parallel with these ideas of the plow and the plowman and the world around us. John 4.35 says, Christ says, do not say that there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Charles Spurgeon remarks, he says, brother worker. Are you getting a little weary? Never mind, rouse yourselves and plow on for the love of Jesus and dying men. Plowing is hard work, he says, but as there will be no harvest without it. Let us just put forth all our strength and never flag to have performed our Lord's will and by his Holy Spirit wrought conviction in men's souls. Some soils are very stiff and cling together and the labor is hard, is heartbreaking. Others are like the unreclaimed waste, full of roots and tangled bramble. They need a steam plow, and we must pray the Lord to make us such, for we cannot leave them untilled, and therefore we must put forth more strength that the labor may be done. Jesus said in John four thirty eight, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have plowed or labored, and you have entered into their labor. Final remarks here. Really, um, application to all of this is that there's bad news for us this morning. The bad news is that no one, not one of us, has ever kept their hand to the plow without looking back. Not one of us. There's not anybody here says, you've put your hand to the plow when Jesus called you out of darkness into this marvelous light that you have never looked back. And if you say you have, you just look back. But you know what? There's good news because there's someone who has taken the plow and never looked back. We can't keep our hand to the plow. And must see that this was never the full intention of this verse. It is a command like any other command from Scripture that cannot be fulfilled in our own strength. We have all let go. We have all looked back. And this is why the great plowman, Jesus Christ, stepped in on our behalf. Psalms 129.3 says, The plowers plowed upon my back. Jesus bore the full weight of God's wrath upon himself. But in Revelation 225 it says, But that which ye have already told have already hold fast till I come. Christ is our Eritreo. He is the completion of it all. He's done it all. And he's empowered us and he keeps us until the end. This does not mean that we are to be wishy-washy, unstable believers. But this reality of knowing that there has been one who has stepped in, who's obeyed that commandment, took that commandment to the grave, and has risen from the grave, should give us great comfort, great encouragement, and great conviction to endure to the end. Knowing that our master has never let go of that plow and has obeyed his father perfectly in our place should give us the strength and the encouragement to go on plowing in the joy and power of the Holy Spirit. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters. Be encouraged in this this time that we live to, to grab a hold of the plow and go. Preach the word of God because it's the only thing that can plow up the hearts of men. There's nothing else. It is the gospel that reaches in with that spade and sticks in and flips that stony heart out of that filthy garden and puts in a new heart. But it's not by our own actions, but not by our own wills, not by our own power, but all in the power of the gospel. Let us pray. God, we come before you this morning. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for this call upon our lives, Lord. And if there's Anyone in this room today who knows deep down that they are not a disciple of Christ? Not that they have to do a bunch of good works, or they have to now become a supreme farmer, or they have to be one that holds on to the plow or this plowman. No, they have to trust in the eternal plowman who is Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name, Lord, that you will convert those who do not know you this morning for your glory. Lord, you don't need permission to invade our lives or the lives of an unbeliever. Make yourself known in power, Lord, and save those who are yours. God, we offer them up to you and we trust you and believe by faith that you're going to convert souls in this building this morning. Lord, we're thankful. We're thankful for the work you're doing in your church here, the believers here. You're strengthening us, you're encouraging us, and you're pushing us on, Lord. We commit the rest of this day into Thy hands O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.